the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. In last week's edition of Challenge 2.0, we examined a program that allows men and women to pursue an education while still in prison. A program that enables them to embrace a new personal reality and to build a new future. This week, we examine a group called Underground Ministries and its program, One Parish, One Prisoner, in which faith communities adopt an incarcerated man or woman to ease their transition beyond bars. So we're really pleased to have with us the founder, the executive director of that program, and that is none other than Chris Hope. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome to be here, Jeff. Chris, I've got to ask you, when you look at the website for Underground Ministries, uh, it mentions it has the title of Gang Pastor. Now, I have to believe that in high school, that was not a career you were generally thinking of. Tell us a little bit about the backstory of what led you in that direction. What inspired you? No, my, my first career path was to be an indie rock star, and uh, that, that didn't pan out. Um, <laughs> no, I, in, in short, I was a really over-churched kid in the uh, suburbs of uh, Southern California and being part of a really uh, large evangelical church growing up and part of that um, mania of being in a, a really over church upbringing is that you hear their stories of Jesus a lot mm -hmm. um, and so that that can backfire because a lot of folks I think the kids like me after a while realize they've raised their hand and said they want to follow Jesus over and over but then you get like 17 18 years old you're like when do we start and the, in yeah, he was raising the dead Mm -hmm. and he was a friend of outcasts and sinners there's this radical social movement and oftentimes church becomes more like a club like keep coming back and being a good little boy and girl mm -hmm. so i was still itching to live into to follow this kind of radical marginalized figure from the middle east um and and so i i, I thought i'd go to seminary i ended up going to uc berkeley which is a little different than the evangelical colleges my parents i think had in mind um but after I was in, in, in Berkeley, I wanted to read the scriptures in context with among the folks that Jesus spent so much time with. Um, and I learned about this liberation theologian in the far Northwest in the Skagit Valley. I've never heard mm -hmm. of him. And he, um, he had done a lot of work with base communities in, in, in Honduras, but he was writing a book called Reading the Bible with the Damned, uh, an Old Testament theologian, uh, reading the Bible with folks who were in the small county jail. So I came up here to read basically to do seminary in a jail mm -hmm. um, thinking like, okay, this is what I've always needed. But when I was in there, I didn't expect how much I would love and get along with the guys, my age in the early twenties, they had tattoos all over their faces, mm -hmm. lips and their necks and their hands. And they're funny as hell. And they were so insightful about the questions you were asking, trying to draw connections between where would the tax collectors and prostitutes be and, in our, in our day and age and they knew the social landscape they knew the underground they knew the margins so, so they mm -hmm. were like my not only great um scripture reading friends but they, they just became friends and they'd invite me to do one-on-one -on -one pastor visits and so that's where i kind of said well, hold up i'm not a pastor that was still a bad word to me um, right and they said no you're 
you know, I'd come to their lawyer visits, I'd do one-on-one -on -one visits and they would have to, to, with the jail staff, be qualified as clergy visits. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just kind of a, a word I was usurping just to meet with these guys who I love. But they started saying, no, you're our pastor, dog. God sent us you. So I, I stopped arguing with them after two or three years. And I just put on my uh, business card gang pastor. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was kind of ordained from below, you could say. Well, I know one of the books that you said was really influential for you was The New Jim Crow. Uh, it was a book that made quite a bit of an impression on me, too. In what way did it draw you into the path that you've followed since then? Well, yeah, when 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 that book dropped, I'd been working, when did that come out, like 2010? I'd been in and out of the jails, working with incarcerated folks for about five or six years, and that was like the first book that, that was kind of like the, the shot heard around the world. It started a whole discourse in America mm -hmm. around mass incarceration, that even being a word we take for granted now, like <clears throat> folks, just people either didn't talk about, or they had nothing but derision for people in jail or prison. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden there was this national conversation going on. Um, and so I took a handful of guys I work with largely out of um, Mexican American gangs in a rural Valley up to see her um, in Bellingham. And she made a really compelling two things that really, really stuck with me. One is that she was saying how even as a civil rights activist, she had kind of grown numb to or rolled her eyes when people be like, hey, the system's rigged against us or, mm -hmm. and you know, they, they're just, this is just a machine making money off us trying to get us in here. She'd be like, yeah, I know there's a lot of problems and need for reform, but no, that's, that's just street level conspiracy theory. And she tells her story of slowly realizing, oh no, they're not wrong. Mm -hmm. there's a, a his, there's a legislative history and intentional design to the laws and architecture of the prison system that grew only a few years after the civil rights era mm -hmm. so end of jim crow all right well then we can pivot quickly if we can't make them less human through jim crow all we need to do is give them a felony and according to um the 13th amendment a lot of folks have seen uh, the very important documentary 13th on netflix in the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery, there's a caveat, unless you're incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And so she, she helped put incarcerate, mass incarceration on the map, which is what I was already doing. So people were talking about it. Um, my stories and my friends were suddenly relevant. And she helped me think about the system at large rather than just the beautiful individuals to the company. Um, and then lastly, in, in her talk, she closes her talk after she equates mass incarceration in America in the last 40, 50 years with Jim Crow and before that slavery, she says, what we need now is a new underground railroad. Mm -hmm. um, that was a just mass networks, informal networks of community members, neighbors, clergy, welcoming people out of captivity. And so that for me, just stuck in my mind for years and slowly became our, our employment networks. We called it uh, underground employment. Mm -hmm. And so many started underground ministries wanting to build networks uh, around re-entry about people coming home and smuggling them back into the community um, not just legislative reform that's important um, but it's really it, the tipping point with the end of slavery was communities that were actively in relationship breaking down and risking their social networks uh, against that system there was one of the statistics in the book and i want to get into where you went with that but it compared the percentage of people that are incarcerated in the united states with virtually every other country in the world. Uh, what is that? And what was your reaction when you heard that? 
the sheer size of incarceration in America is so off the Richter scale compared to any other developed nation. Um, it, you know, you quote numbers, but they don't really hit visually. There's some bar graphs, which really help you see, like if you add it up, like the next 12 developed nations or NATO countries, if you add it up on a bar graph, all of their per capita uh, amounts mm -hmm. of incarceration in their own country, like we're more than all of them added together and more. Um, so there it's it's a uniquely american sin so to say it's uniquely american phenomenon it's not just because of our population in the land of the free we have a real big addiction to throwing wow. human beings away so in, in my first book wanted a lot of the stories kind of pointed me towards understanding prisons as human dumpsters as human landfills um that we're in a society that uses and disposes of um, and mm -hmm. we don't really fix things that are broken um and so we we throw them away and um and so yeah that just was another image that kind of hammered home this idea of there being an underground of of, of trying to bury much of our population that we don't that embody a lot of the wounds and the histories that we don't want to face or we don't know how to be part of the healing so as you talk about understanding or seeing that need to develop that sort of underground railroad uh take us forward from when you had that recognition to how it led to the program that you've developed and is ongoing right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, when my book came out, one of my my best friends from the years of working with gang members here in the, the, the Valley, he came home uh, to live with me and my wife. Um, we'd been planning it for about two years. And so we, I, we really learned reentry on, on a, like a master's degree level uh, for two years with this guy. And he was one of the leaders in the local gangs and very traumatized guy, a lot of trouble, a lot of politics in prison on the streets, very broken family history. And so um, we were really building a life from scratch. Um, and when he and I started going, and he's in the book too, so he and I got to speak in a lot of churches and some mm -hmm. college campuses and some bookstores. And there would always be the question at the end when people would hear some inspiring stories, changes that he had in solitary confinement, welcoming him home. People always raise their hand and said, well, what can we do? And Oftentimes, I didn't have a great answer. I didn't want to get into the different legislative options that are in that, you know, voting cycle in different states. But early on, someone came up to us and had a very poorly typed up little prospectus and tucked it in my pocket in the kind of book signing line afterwards that was said, OPOP, one parish, one prisoner. There are roughly the same amount of incarcerated people in Washington as there are churches. And I started kind of like googling that and looking at the numbers to see if it was true and it, it was it was similar back then the numbers numbers have changed a lot in the last six years um but it really got me thinking so i'd go to the next venue and they'd ask the same question and so i'd pull that out of my pocket and say what do you guys think of this what if every church out there became a re-entry team and they didn't have to start a program they didn't have to go create a full-time job helping the incarcerated but the whole community just knew one person and they, if they built relationship and wrote letters for at least a year ahead of time to build trust and to put a mm -hmm. plan together, wouldn't that, would that be cool? And I thought folks, especially those that were church audiences would be like, Ooh, that they, I'd be calling their bluff. Yeah. They wouldn't want to do that. I mean, I was surprised everywhere I went, they said, where do we sign up? Like, oh. like it's, it's not a program. It's just an idea. It's just a think piece, so to say. And people, I could see the disappointment in people's eyes. Like, whoa, that was actually something we could do. Yeah, we could love one person. A church has everything someone needs coming back to the community. Not only uh, people could pool together and fundraise for the basic costs of early housing, knowing a local place to rent to, 
uh, a used car, uh, seasoned mothers and fathers to help with kids and childcare, um, maybe a connection with someone who could have a job. So much of reentry is really relationships. Um, that mass incarceration is severed relationship locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we've we've cut off parts of the community. So really, I got sold on it the more we talked about it. And then it was just something I talked about for a year or two until someone in the Catholic Archdiocese um, heard us speaking at a roundtable around gang violence. And I kind of, I liked throwing that in at the end for a little firecracker. What if, what if every church did this? And he said, I have worked with incarcerated for years and I just got stuck in this job in the Archdiocese. I need to have a program for like every Catholic church on the Western side of Washington. Yeah. Let's build one parish for prisoner. And within a year, we'd started a new organization and started piloting it. Um, we started with a little Presbyterian church, a big activist Jesuit uh, cathedral in Seattle and a tiny Methodist rural church. We paired them with three people, did a really cool all day orientation. And that's all we gave them. Wow. Uh, and even with no curriculum, we now have 24 month learning modules that guide people through how to write your first letter, how to prepare for heartbreak, boundaries around money, how to put together a specialty uh, team members about one person looking into housing and another person looking to employment, um, how to mobilize the larger church, etc. Suddenly you found yourself being challenged to, okay, it's a great idea. What do we need to do to make it actually happen? Uh, go ahead and fill in for us from that step. Yeah. So uh, I was telling you about those, those first three parishes that um, even despite there being very little training yet, like that we have now, um, that there, a bond was 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 created. That when there's what Brian Stevenson calls um, the power of proximity, when you get closer and you start to care for someone, um, these teams hung in there and they found ways to accompany their friend, even a home through immigration proceedings, and, and addiction and lost housing and relapses. Um, and so I felt like, wow, even if there's hardly a program and these three parishes are sticking it sticking in there and they love someone. Um, I mean, how many people coming home from prison might relapse or struggle, but they don't have a team with them in the struggle. We're on to something. Mm-hmm. Right around this time, as we were building our from our first five to 10 parishes, my friend from way back in those early days, when I went into the jail when I still had hair and I was in my early 20s, and one of the gang members who first called me pastor and I connected with, and he and I had written letters for years, was Alex, who's now just joined us. Alex is now our, our lead reentry navigator. Uh, as he's going to, to college to be a social worker and accompanying dozens more men coming home from out of gangs mm-hmm. um, out of prison. Alex, um, I've talked about the church side and the organizing side. Do you just want to jump in with us and share what is it like to release from prison when you're wanting to live a new life, not just go back to what you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, releasing from prison, um, especially when you're wanting to lead a new life, for somebody who's gang affected and comes from a real rough background of uh, childhood trauma, addiction, and whatnot, it's you, you, you are releasing from more than just prison. Mm-hmm. I had, to, I had to prepare myself for the release of the gang world. I had to prepare myself from the release of anything that triggered me to run towards addiction. And, and once I could figure those two things out, then I was ready to release from prison. But not only that, it's the scariest thing in the world. Part of me didn't want to come out. Mm-hmm. I had 30, 30 years old. I, I had spent nearly a decade, all my 20s in prison, six of those 10 years uh, in solitary confinement. I never had my driver's license. I never had a job. I didn't know how to approach 
people, county clerks, or, or anybody in the community. So it's the scariest thing in the world. The big part wanted to run and hide and bury my head in the underground, bury my head in, in, in all the stigmas that, that I had to break myself out of. So I couldn't do it alone. What made the difference for you then, Alex? The relationship that I had with Chris um, and also my, my older brother, who I had looked up to, had recently changed his life also. And uh, Chris, Chris was a big, a big mentor in his life. So I, I've known Chris for nearly 17 years. I met him in the Skagit County Jail. And um, I, I was broken when I met Chris. I was a broken, uh, gang-affected, drug-affected, very violent individual. And I had trust issues. For some reason, I, I gravitated towards this guy. I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to trust him. Just because he took the time to see me like nobody else did. He says, I see you, buddy. I, I see that you have a heart. And so one of the biggest things that I had to realize getting out was I had to substitute the word change for healing. Mm -hmm. I, I, I couldn't change. I had to heal. I've always had a good heart deep down inside. I just clouded it and destroyed it with all this anger and animosity and all this fake things that I was uh, um, trying to build up to. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in all reality, I was I was building up to a, a life term incarceration or building up to my gravesite. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't know I, was, I thought I was trying trying to be somebody I'm not. So, I mean, on my relationship with Chris, Chris was always there for me, despite uh, despite my pushback and, and everything beyond that. He was always writing me letters, kept in contact with me. Taught me how to uh, use sanitary praying when when I was in solitary confinement. I didn't know how to pray. I, I felt like I was just a, a rambling mess in my head. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had a lot of issues. I, I couldn't stand looking at myself in the mirror. But when I would get Chris's letters and when I he would answer my phone calls, I I knew I had more than just a friend. I had somebody who I can depend on. So upon my release, I connected with Chris and we worked on my reentry and. And he was there every step of the way, still is, you know, I, even though I work with these guys and I address everything from external to internal things, uh, mental health, behavioral health, uh, substance abuse or whatnot. I'm also working on my reentry because it doesn't stop there. Everybody, everybody has things inside that are destroying them. And the only way to fix that is if you, you talk about it, you bring it to light and you're working with others, working with others helps you work on yourself. Let me ask you this question. Uh, Chris, number one, I'm sure this is not the only example that you've heard these things stated before. And Alex, you're working as a navigator now helping other people. Uh, is this generally something that you hear from all people trying to make this shift? Um, not, not, not everyone's um, as articulate as Alex. I think he's a really he puts words beautifully to, I think what many men are feeling and women mm -hmm. are feeling and experiencing. Alex is really talented at naming that well. Um, and he's also talented in, in trusting, even when he said so simply, I have trust issues. I think everyone does, mm -hmm. especially people who have been burned. Um, Alex, you said something just at the end there that like when we're working with others, that helps us work on ourselves. And I, I think that's absolutely true on the other side of the fence, so to say, of, of folks in all these churches, that oftentimes um, we see it, when a church has one parish, one prisoner, seven people join the parish team because a whole mm -hmm. church get to know someone. Um, 
and in, in these teams of seven people that are meeting together and exchanging letters, oftentimes so many things come out of the woodwork and they say, I've, I've been part of this community for 30 some years and I've never talked about my daughter's mental health struggles. Um, mm-hmm. But I can't because this guy coming home, we're talking about mental health and his meds and stuff. And these learning modules are asking us to talk about it. Or another member of the team saying, I can help him with his addiction stuff. I've never told anyone this in the community, but I've been going to 12-step meetings for the last 23 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never talked about my nephew that was always in and out of jail and prison. We were too ashamed to talk about it. So there's so much healing and work to be done in our, not just churches. I just take churches as a great rallying point for community members. Um, that there's so much work to be done. There's so much healing and that working with someone coming home from prison is a great way to unlock our stories in our mm-hmm. world. I, I, I see the scared individual inside of them that I was uh, just three years ago. I, I, I can sympathize with them. I, I can relate to them. Um, and, and it's okay. And I let them know it's, it's okay to be scared because guess what? I'm still scared with you. <laughs> oh, life, life, life is scary, but there is a different way. There is a way out and you live a life. I'm, I'm enjoying life. I, I love life. I love learning, just soaking everything in. And I just want to be that lighthouse that shines light on others so that mm-hmm. they can the world and empower others. Um, I, I just, I just let them know, Hey, we believe in you. Um, Cause I, I, I got to hear that. Cause there's, there's times where I, I you know, my mind, my mind goes to certain things and, and I, I got to tell myself that that I am not that person anymore, that I am somebody and I am making a difference. Well, let me ask you this then, and that is for people that are out there that are wondering, uh, this sounds like a really excellent idea. How does the program work specifically? And uh, Chris, maybe you could start us out with that. And then Alex, feel free to jump in anytime. So how it works. Uh when uh, we get applications from folks who are incarcerated in Washington state. And if, um, if they're saying yes, like we don't discriminate on any charges or severity of crime. Um, but we're just looking for someone who is saying, I do want to build new relationships and I need help. Um, and if they're releasing the somewhere in Washington state within the next uh, two years or so, because uh, one to two years. Uh, and so based on that, we start recruiting from our growing networks of uh, churches around the state and different denominations. That's a lot of our work. And we invite churches to imagine that reentry is something totally in line with what we proclaim about resurrection, equating the tombs as uh, prisons as tombs and reentry as resurrection. When they say, yeah, we, a lot of them, what we do is we help churches listen to what Alex just said, like, these guys are scared and they can relate to your fear. We're all in this together. Um, and then we jumpstart them with a kickoff orientation. Once the church says yes, they pick their seven people. We introduce them to their friend coming home, give them a two-hour kickoff orientation. And they go through 24 monthly learning modules. The first year is generally writing letters, building release plan, building trust. A lot of preparation for picking them up at the prison when their big release day comes, putting, uh, bringing them to the house that they've already figured out housing over the last few months. Um, taking it day by day and getting their driver's license and going through moods and ups and downs and figure out medical insurance and walking through maybe a really beautiful season head or maybe some really rocky patches of recovery. Um, that's in, in short, that's how it works. Um, folks find us uh, in prison. They can't go to our website. They just hear about it and uh, ask for an application. Uh, folks on the outside, if they're listening now, just go to undergroundministries.org 
or you can go right to our one parish one prisoner page with one parish one prisoner org and you just fill out a short survey and we'll be in touch with you real soon chris summed it up great right now i mean the a final party message that i want to send away with people is if you do decide to do this um ask yourself why what is your why and, and once you got your why figured out you're gonna move into everything with an open heart and good intentions and you're also going to heal yourself. This is going to be a life transforming decision and, and, and um, opportunity. You know, I, I, I read a quote that stuck with me uh, a month ago and it's uh, the, the meaning in life is to find your gift and, and your purpose is to give that gift away. I, I found my gift and I, I'm giving that gift away. I'm, I'm giving back. There's just a lot of folks who I think would want to do something like this, but they're like, yeah, I'm not totally hip with all the religious stuff. And I would encourage you if, if this general operation, this gathering of seven people and walking with someone home really calls to you, hit us up, um, go to one parish, one prisoner.org. Um, we're working with a few groups who are Unitarians or uh, uh, two Jewish congregations are like, yeah, we need some of your curriculum a little differently when you get into the explicitly christian stuff but we want to do this and so yeah. the more the interest comes our way we're learning different ways of holding it naming it and celebrating it and if you want to do this um please don't let um, a certain religious language keep you from reaching out well thank you very, both very much it's evident that this is a gift that goes two ways it helps people that are maybe coming out of prison but it also can greatly help and be a gift to people that are seeing themselves maybe initially as the helpers, but uh, initially or finally as the help. So thank you both very much. And we thank all of you out there for joining us on this edition of Challenge 2.0. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.